0: Well, depending on whether or not you count Good Friday and Easter, you could say that this is the formal conclusion of our Jesus series, um, which we've been going through from Christmas all the way now to Easter. I kind of hesitated for a moment. I wasn't sure if we were going to get some applause or not. This is part 12 of a series. And usually we cut it off at three, four, five tops. But for this one, we, we were okay with it being unique because we wanted to take these 12 weeks to really d- dive into the life of Jesus. So today with part 12, it's kind of the informal conclusion. Obviously, we're going to continue looking at the rest of the story into Good Friday and Easter Sunday, which is this week. Um, so what we didn't tell you at the beginning of the series, we secretly, purposefully held back some information from you. Otherwise, you would have freaked out. See, at the beginning of the series, we told you we were going to go through the life of Jesus, and we've been doing that. Um, What we didn't tell you is the depth of content that we had to work with. Now many of you know this, in the Bible there's four biographies or four accounts of Jesus' life. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And here's some quick Bible trivia you can impress your friends during the week. If you put those four books together and you count up all the chapters, there's a total of 89 total chapters in those four books. See, if we had told you that on week one, you'd be like, oh, no way, I'm coming back. That's way too much content. But we picked the highlights, we picked the pivotal moments, the things that really kept Jesus' story moving forward. And so now we're basically at the last week of this series, and you might be thinking, okay, just a few chapters left. We're going to polish this thing off, no problem. Well, here's another thing. This might rattle you a little bit, so be, be ready. You might want to sit down for this. When you look at the content of these 89 chapters, this blew me away when I saw this. 29 chapters were just the final week of his life and beyond. So if you do some quick math, you take 89 minus 29, you get 60. That's roughly a third, right? A third of the content. I put it this way in sentence format. One-third of what was written about Jesus details the final week of his life. So we're just at the ending of this series, but guess what? We're just getting started. Um, and, and kind of the breakoff point is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is this bridge into the last one-third of, of content that's written about Jesus' life. We see his entry into Jerusalem. We see a lot of teaching that, that goes on from Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and into Thursday of this week. Um, we, we see a lot of things that people remembered, which makes total sense. We even see this with modern people. Like if you want to learn about Lincoln's life, Abraham Lincoln, you're going to get a lot of kind of mundane details about the last few days of his life. Well, Why is that? Because once his life was ended, people would look back and say, wow, do you remember what he's doing back on Wednesday? Remember how we just had this conversation about this? Remember how he went to this one place or how he did this one thing? And you can read biographies just filled with content about his last week. And the same is true of Jesus. After he died and rose again, people were sitting back like, whoa, do you remember what he was doing a week ago? Do you remember what he said on Monday? Do you remember what he did at the temple that one time? And as they started to share their stories, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were taking notes. They were remembering these things. And eventually they put them down into written format, which is why we have such an extensive amount of ink spent on this, this last week of his life. And here's my struggle. And you can say, ah, if you want to, you can say, ah, after I share the struggle. I really wrestled with how or what to dig into for this final message of the series. Because when you look at all the information there is, how do you pick? How do you pick? Now, obviously, Newsflash, today as, as I preach this, it's Palm Sunday and so, okay, there's the natural thing to preach about. But as I read through it, I'm like, this is really hard to preach on. <laughs> because Palm Sunday is basically a series of events and so many different things that require explanation. And, and it's like, well, how many times can I explain what a donkey does? And how many different ways can we talk about palm branches and what they signify? I mean, so much of this has been ingrained into many of us for, for many, many years. And so as I, th- I was thinking about it, I actually was... Um, talking to Danny Wegner, our music director, worship director, and I was kind of offloading onto him. I'm like, how many times, can, how many different ways can we talk about donkeys and palm branches? I'm like, what are we going to do? And so here's where I landed, and here's where we're going with this for today. The events of Palm Sunday have so many different things going on. Different things being said, different things being done, people reacting different ways, so many different details that we could d- dive into. But here's what I observed. When you look at how Matthew and Mark and Luke and John recount the events of that day, what I observed is that really nothing new happened on Palm Sunday. It's not like Jesus did something or said something where it's like, oh, we haven't seen that side of him before. It's not like he performed a miracle where we're like, oh, we didn't know he could do that. Everything he does has been said or done before. And as I pieced together all the different details, I came To an observation. And it's this. Number one on your sheets if you're taking notes. Many things happen Palm Sunday that all point to one conclusion. One conclusion. And I don't want to give you that conclusion up front because then you could just walk out and not have to listen to the rest of the sermon and I would get a pay cut. I get paid for how long you stay in the seats. That's why we go so long. But the reason I want to draw this out is because it's not until you see the details of the day, and they all start to add up, add up, add up. And the way Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John recorded this day, it was so that the first century readers, who knew nothing perhaps about Jesus, they would read through this story, and there would be this moment at the end of Palm Sunday where the reader would say, oh, okay, okay, I think I get where this is going. Now the account we're going to look at today is from Luke's account who, who talked to a bunch of eyewitnesses and put it together into one story. And before we dive into that, I want to give you kind of a historical backdrop of what was happening on that first Palm Sunday. And we're going to talk about why it's called Palm Sunday and why there's a better word for it in just a little bit. But that Sunday, things were happening in Jerusalem. And before we dive into Luke, this is what you need to know. So that Sunday was the Sunday before the Passover meal, which for Jews everywhere meant you go to Jerusalem if you're physically able, you select a lamb, you sacrifice it, and then on Passover day, you have the Passover meal with your family. And Jew, this was like the Christmas for, for Jews, right? They would come together. This would be the thing to celebrate, celebrate and commemorate. Now what's interesting about Sunday is that if if you look at the Passover the rules were the rule was each family picks their Passover lamb 4 days before the meal. So you pick out your lamb, you set it aside, maybe you put it apart from the flock, maybe you maybe you mark it with something, maybe you give it a name. Kid Billy the kid Billy Maybe you bring it into your house. This lamb was specifically set apart for you. And that would happen on, for this day, Sunday. Palm Sunday was the day that families would select the lamb that would help them remember God's great deliverance from Egypt. Sunday was the day to acknowledge the lamb. Sunday was the day to acknowledge the lamb. And so Jews everywhere would come together into Jerusalem to begin this celebration that they called Passover. And as they did so, this would create a little bit of congestion, as you might imagine. Tens of thousands, perhaps even more than that, of people would converge on Jerusalem. And now here's the other side of this. So while the Jews were coming, maybe you know this, at that time the Roman government was in control of everything. They occupied that area. And if you're the Roman government, you got all these Jews assembling at one time, what's your greatest worry? See, all it takes is one crazy person to plant an idea in a crowd, and they'll do anything. They recognize that with all these Jews together, they could form an army, they could form a riot, they could do some damage, and that would not be good for the Roman Empire. I mean, all it takes is for a few crazy people in one crowd to plant ideas, and all of a sudden, they're ready to crucify an innocent man. The Romans knew that. So what they would do at this time of year is they would actually fortify the garrisons at Jerusalem. They would send in extra troops, extra detachments. So picture this. Well, what's the best way to do it or the best day to do it on? When they all show up. So while Palm Palm Sunday was the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem, that also would have been the time or very close to the time when the Romans would have sent their huge detachments of soldiers into Jerusalem to garrison it and to defend it so from the direction they would have come, from the west, these Roman uh, detachments of soldiers would come in with their mighty horses, their soldiers, their centurions, everyone decked out in battle armor because they ruled by fear, and fear would make anyone submit. Now you got Jesus on the other side of town coming in. And he doesn't come into Jerusalem quite the same way. And as he goes about it a a different way, and he kind of makes a public affair of this, the disciples think they know why he's doing this. But they really don't. Here's what happened. According to Luke chapter 19, Jesus went on ahead going up to Jerusalem... As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at a hill called the Mount of Olives. Now just to give you a a picture of this, to go up to Jerusalem at an elevation, you have to go over the Mount of Olives or at least around it to get to Jerusalem. And so you can't really see Jerusalem until you get to the top of this mount. And then like the entire city just unfolds before you. Check out Google Maps. It's really cool. But you look at this whole city and before they get to that point, Jesus kind of taps the brakes, he says, hold on, guys, 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 um, we need to do something here. And it says that it happened when they got to Bethphage and Bethany, like these dual, or dual twin cities, uh, towns uh, kind of smaller than the twin cities that we have today. But here's, here's like a little Bible trivia, and I think there might be something going on here. Bethany means house of figs. So that's what Bethany means. You can read into that what you want. Fig Newtons, I'm not sure where your mind is going. But house of figs, Bethphage, the the opposite of it, Bethphage literally means house of unripe figs. There were some figs that just would not ripen the normal ways. It was a certain species, or I'm not sure the correct scientific word, but there's just a, a kind of fig that would not ripen. And so Bethphage was where those kinds of figs were, and Bethany was where the ripe ones were. And what's interesting is that Jesus uses this place to fulfill what was yet unfulfilled. To, to, in, in, a, in fruit terms, to ripen what is, was not yet ripe. He says, guys, we need to stop at this point because we need to do something right here. And this is what he said. He sent two of them to his disciples saying to them, I want you guys to go to the village ahead of you. And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Okay, this is kind of getting weird. But okay, we're getting close to Jerusalem. Maybe Jesus is tired. He just needs to, you know, ride on a, a donkey or a colt. And by the way, donkey or colt, um, a colt is a young male donkey that's less than a year old. Okay, so there you go. Now you've got your, another trivia. We've got a lot of trivia going on today. Um, so apparently there were Colts fans, and Jesus says, I want you to go um, to, to get this Colt, and you're going to find it. And he basically describes it in full context. And one interesting detail, Jesus says, this Colt has never been ridden. It has not been commissioned for any role yet. No one has sat on it. Nothing has been carried on it. It's as if Jesus wants something new that he can set apart for a special purpose. Which is what he does with each and every one of you. You are being made new. You're being made new every day through the spirit. For a special role, a special calling. But he tells his disciples, go into this village. This is what you're going to find. It's going to be very specific. Here's what you do with it. And when you find this colt, And by the way, this is kind of weird. This would kind of be like me telling you, hey, when you go home today, if you go up the block, you're going to find this Ford Mustang. The keys are in it. It's going to be tied up to the whatever, keys are in it, ready to go. Here's what you do with it. I want you to drive it home. That would be kind of awkward, a little awkward. Jesus said, okay, go to the donkey, untie it, and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, which is what someone would probably do if you're driving away with their Ford Mustang, why are you untying it? Just tell them, well, the Lord needs it. The Lord needs it. Not that it's a nice-to-have, not that we could probably, you know, use a donkey, but we can't move forward without it. Now the disciples thought they had this figured out. Oh, yeah, see, Rome is coming from the west side of Jerusalem with their horses, and they're trying to scare people. Well, we can make an even bigger impact if we come in a different way. What will the people think if we come in humbly riding on this donkey? Can you imagine the impact? And we're going to get some social media from this. And Maybe they had this all figured out in their minds, but they missed one big thing that I'm going to show you next. 550 years before they even were standing there talking about a donkey, a prophet named Zechariah was talking to people near Jerusalem who were completely hopeless. The northern ten tribes were long gone. Now Jerusalem was in ruins. The the Jews had been conquered. And now Zechariah was sent to give hope to these people. And he tells them, hey, I know that things aren't good now, but this is not our end. And here's a specific promise God gave through Zechariah. He said this, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, talking to the Hebrew people. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. Look, see, your king comes to you. What king? We've been defeated. What kingdom? We have none left. He comes. He comes. He comes righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. And and the significance of that is if a king really wanted to make a statement to his people about how powerful he was, he would ride around on his kingly horse. King gets the best horse. King's horse gets the best armor, the flashiest armor. He sends a message that he is powerful. But if he really wants to send a message, he would ride around on a donkey. And here's what that would mean. A donkey is only ridden in times of peace, when there is no enemy around and no threat to the security of the nation. If you see your king riding on a donkey, that means he's putting on a show that there's no one who can touch us. He's completely vulnerable, and yet he knows that there's been victory, and there's no need to be afraid. That would send a message to people to see their ho- their, their king, <laughs> to see their horse riding on a donkey. To see their king, <laughs> that would send a message too. To see their king riding on a donkey. But Zechariah takes it one step more. He says, it's not just that your king's going to ride on a donkey. He's going to ride on a colt, on a baby donkey, a, a donkey that's not fully developed yet. It's not fully grown yet. It, it's not maneuverable by any means. It's, it's like the worst animal you could possibly sit on. But he's, he prophesied, he said, this is the kind of king that comes to you. And from that moment, people had this hope and this hope, when will this king come? When will the son of David Rise back to his throne. So, people were gathering. The disciples just did not understand this. You look at John's account of what happened, and <clears throat> after Zachariah is actually referenced by John, he said, The disciples had no idea. He was one of them. <laughs> he said, We had no idea what this was all about. We thought that this was for a different reason, or maybe it was to offset what Rome was doing, but we had no idea he was fulfilling this even in our midst. So here's how the story continues. So they went and they found it just as had been told them. Sure enough, the people who owned it said, wait a minute, what are you doing? And they said, the Lord needs it. And there you go. It was settled. They walked off with a colt. And actually Matthew adds another detail. Matthew said it wasn't just the colt they took, but there was another donkey, presumably the colt's mother, because it wasn't old enough to be weaned yet maybe. The story being, you know, this colt was so little, it couldn't even go out without its mommy, right? Like, that's how small it was. Um, And so that was the message Jesus wanted to send, that, that he had no problem with the enemy around him, but that he went forth in victory. Now, the reason the disciples should have known this something was different is because they acknowledged the miracle in all of this. Jesus told them just what to expect when they entered the city. And it was just as he told them. They found it just as it had been told them. They're like, wow, how did he know it was this specific street? It would be tied here. It would be a cult. They would ask us what we're doing. Here's the magic password to get us to go. Right? How did he know all those things? must have been a miracle. But here's what should have tipped them off that things were different. This wasn't about Jesus making a political statement. And here's why. Jesus performed a miracle to get the donkey, and as long as he was doing that, he could have done something a lot easier. Donkey, up here. Donkey, just wander in. Come to us, donkey. Or here's what I would suspect, you know, a real miracle, Jesus would kind of form the dirt and the clay up in the form of a donkey, you know, big old ears, that would be a miracle, just forming ears with the clay. Um, But then he'd, you know, breathe life into the donkey, it'd rise up, and then he'd ride that into Jerusalem. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? And a whole lot less trouble and a whole lot less awkward for those two men who had to go ask for it. But here's where we see something in Palm Sunday that's nothing new, but it's a point and it's a detail that helps lead us to a certain conclusion. When it came to Jesus' power, he never used it for his own amusement or his own benefit. But rather, he only used it for fulfillment and so here's what maybe we're thinking. When, when we think about boy Jesus, we're thinking, oh, man, his, cho- his chores were, were easy. He'd just snap his fingers and bed is made, you know, snap his fingers and floor swept, you know, just magic. No, that is not how he grew up, and that's not how he lived, because he did not use his power for his own amusement or even his own benefit. He used his power for fulfillment and to benefit the people around him. The reason that's important is because he did not come here to benefit himself or amuse himself. He came here to live a life that's just as difficult as yours in every way, with no shortcuts, no snapping of the finger. He simply came here to fulfill what was set before him. And sometimes that meant setting aside his power to do it. And as you consider that, that helps lead us to a certain conclusion about what's coming up in the week ahead. The story continues. They they go and they get this colt, they bring it to Jesus, and here's what happens. So they threw their cloaks on it. Well, why would they do that? Because when you have a young colt who's still growing, you don't put a saddle on it because it's just going to outgrow the saddle. So you wait until it's grown up, and then you make a saddle for it. So since it didn't have a saddle, they said, well, what are we going to do? Well, let's take our cloaks and put them on there so he has something to sit on at least. And here's where we need to pause because when I envision, you know, C- cloaks during that time. I picture this whatever piece of fabric that you can just toss around and whatever. But that's not what Luke is describing here. The cloak he's describing is the outer clothing that everyone would have worn at the time. You see, you had your inner clothing, which got stinky and sweaty. They didn't have deodorant back then. And so that's the stuff that would get all nasty. But then you had this nice wrapping that you'd put over it. Your outer clothing, your, your garment or your cloak, And that would have been expensive and valuable. In today's terms, that would be your sport coat that you would bring in with you. And so they said, well, he has no saddle. What are we going to do? And they said, well, we have these cloaks. And they took them off and put them on the saddle. And I want to know, I'm curious, who was the first disciple to do that, to put his cloak on that hairy, dirty animal? But that's their best. That's what they had, and so that's what they used. And the people, as they saw this, and Jesus started to ride this, this uh, colt near Jerusalem, they noticed. And they honored him in a different way. It says that uh, when, as, as Jesus went along, back one phrase, or back one real quick. As, as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. Which, okay, we kind of get it. This is a valuable thing that they're placing on the road to, to make a pathway for Jesus. But in their culture, it wouldn't have been as weird as ours. Like if we took off our sport coats and put them down for, for Pastor Ben to walk out on, that would be weird. We might just leave the church and say, you figure it out, right? Um, but we don't, you know, this is not a normal cultural thing for us to put our fine clothing down on, on a road. But for them, this would have been a cultural norm. It would have symbolized submission and honor. You see, Rome tried to get submission and honor by putting fear into people. But Jesus, through his vulnerability, earned it from them. They willingly took off their garments. They put them down on the ground. If you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of them mention garments that the people took down and placed on the road. It's only John that mentions palm branches. So, okay, if we really want to get biblical, we should call this Cloak Sunday, can we start the hashtag, Cloak Sunday, see how far it gets? I, don't, I think Palm Sunday has a better ring to it. The palms would have indicated victory, success. And as a king walked into town or rode into town on a colt or on a donkey, that would have been what they were saying too. Victory, peace from this person. And as much as they honored him, we're going to see that people maybe didn't quite understand the true honor that was due to him. Here's how it continues. When they came near the place where the road goes down, so they're at the top of the mount, they can see Jerusalem, they're about to make this entry. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles from the past. John notes that some people who had witnessed Lazarus come back to life, which we talked about last week, They were in the crowd telling people, this is Jesus. He rose Lazarus. This is Jesus. He rose Lazarus. And word spread, word spread, and people were just amazed. Because beyond all the other miracles that they had heard about, now he's raising people from the dead. So they praised God. They honored him because of what had happened. Little did they know what was going to happen. As much as Jesus earned their praise for the three years previous, Three days in the grave would earn the praise of all mankind. Little did they know what was coming ahead. Here's what they said to him. They said, blessed is the king, the king who rides the donkey. Blessed is the king who comes in the name or with the authority of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. I think it's funny that when the angels announced Jesus' birth, the heavenly angels talked about peace on earth. And now that Jesus is about to fulfill what he came to do, the people on earth are proclaiming peace in heaven. Because that's a good picture of everything that is now reconciled between God and man. Whether they knew it or not, they were actually getting to the heart of what Jesus came to do. Matthew, Mark, and John, they all record different phrases people were shouting out there. Because this was not an organized chant. Jesus didn't say, okay, on the count of three, shout Hosanna in the highest. One, two, three. He wasn't guiding them. This was just natural. People were just shouting out whatever was on their hearts. Hosanna. Praise God. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were giving glory to God directed towards this man on a colt. Now, they didn't quite understand the depth to which they were honoring him. And maybe they just viewed this as a man coming to town who would squash the Roman opposition and grant them freedom. Here's finally our king that grants us freedom. They were honoring him. They loved him. But maybe not for the right reason. And then there's some other people in the crowd. The Pharisees in the crowd. They said to Jesus, teacher, 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 you are not God. You are not the Lord. You are not Yahweh. You are teacher. That is who you are. Do not receive the praise that is due to God. Rebuke your disciples. God would not allow this praise to go to you. Tell them to knock it off. And Jesus had to be thinking, what do you mean God would not allow this? He goes on to say, well, if God would not allow them to speak, he's going to allow something else to do it in their place. Jesus would continue with this. I tell you, Jesus replied, if, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. If you say that these people are not allowed to, to honor me, God will allow something else to take their place. See, the, 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 the religious leaders, they had this hatred for Jesus because they viewed him as this blasphemer who was leading people away from God. And they had to take action against him. They hated him, but for the wrong reason. And this is nothing new. We see people loving Jesus. We see people hating Jesus much earlier than this. But on Palm Sunday, as these two things come together, it helps us to form a conclusion about what's happening here. Um, first of all, number three on your sheet, some people love Jesus, some people hated him, but most did either for the wrong reason. As we can continue to do so today. Some of us love God, love Jesus, but we have this idea or image of God that's actually not accurate. And we love that God. We love that part of God. The God who gives me things. The God who always does what I ask him to do. Um, And maybe we have this faulty idea of God that we love. And maybe there's this faulty idea of God that we hate. Like we, we went through some experience in life or someone else went through some experience. And how could God allow that to happen? We have this idea of what God should and should not do. And since he didn't do it or he did do it, well, then I hate him for it. We can set up these false ideas and images of who God should be, and it's so easy to either love him or hate him as a result of it. And we see both of those people on Palm Sunday, both of them, honoring him and defying him, which is not out of the ordinary when you, con- when you consider what exactly it is he came for. You got Rome on the other side of town coming in with all their power and authority and fear, here you have Jesus, almost proclaiming a victory that he hasn't even fought against yet. Yet here he is. As you put all these different things together, how he did miracles, how he engaged with people, how people reacted with him, you're led to this one conclusion when it comes to Palm Sunday and the days that are to come. The conclusion is this. Number four, nobody could imagine the conclusion of this story. The way that the Gospels are written out, it's kind of to bring you along on this journey, along with the disciples, to say, well, what is the story of Jesus all about? And as you go through the story, it's like, well, how does this end? How does this end? And even by the time we get to Palm Sunday, his closest disciples didn't know how it would end. And his greatest enemies didn't know how it would end. And the general public didn't know how it would end. They had no idea this was going to end in a death and in a resurrection. They viewed him as some great prophet, or on the opposite, they viewed him as a great blasphemer, an enemy of God. They viewed him as this great miracle man, or on the other side, they viewed him as this great fraud. They viewed him as a lot of things, but most of them did not view him as the son of God. His story is completely unpredictable because when it comes to the story of God with us, the punchline is what would God do for us? People had no idea that a loving God could go to that extreme for them. So as we get into Holy Week here, just a quick question for you to think about, ponder. What do you imagine when you imagine Jesus? What do you picture? What are your expectations? What do you look for? Why do you praise him? Or why do you hate him? Or why are you uncertain about him? What do you imagine when you imagine Jesus? What becomes absolutely clear on Palm Sunday is that there's no way that we can come up with a correct answer on our own of who he is and what he should look like. And the other thing we realize is that if if we continue just to kind of drift, we'll naturally drift to one extreme, love him for the wrong reason, or the other extreme, to hate him for the wrong reason. It's only when you dig into the real story of what he did that week. That all of a sudden, everything he did made sense. It wasn't until Easter Sunday that the disciples were were thinking about these things. And suddenly things started to click. Oh, you remember what he did last week? Remember what he did that one time? You remember how he told us this? And things started to click for them. And as we get into Holy Week, one last thought here. We've looked a lot about who Jesus is, what he's done, what his identity is. This is not just some great miracle worker. This is not just some great uh, political leader. Not just uh, someone who, who uh, kind of goes against the trends to make a point. This is a story that transcends all of that. This is the story of God with us. And that, best, and that story is best exemplified by what God would do for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, out of your great love and mercy, you looked at this fallen world deserving only of your punishment, and you sent your Son to take that away from us and in its place to give us life and hope. As we sit here, we can easily, easily get, just drift away from a proper understanding of what your priorities are and how you always have eternity in mind for us and how we can get so caught up in daily things that we lose sight of that. We thank you that Jesus never did lose sight of what was needed to bring us to you. This week as we commemorate his death and celebrate his resurrection, I pray that you would fill us with even more faith and trust that we know where our eternity lies and that has a big impact on how we live our daily lives. I ask all those blessings in his name. Amen.